Good morning. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Jolene. And today we're talking about the One Ring Adventure game. The One Ring RPG, yes. And by the way, if you type in the One Ring into Google and you don't put RPG, Google will ask you, did you mean my precious? My precious. And indeed it is. <laughs> my precious. So the reason we talk, we brought this up, I know we talked about Middle Earth games. The Middle Earth games. And of course, One Ring was part of that at the end of the discussion. But I think the One Ring, it going into a second edition, uh, being a kickst- was kickstarted by Free League a while ago now, uh, will probably be, uh, be, uh, will probably be out soon, uh, finished uh, within the next couple months. Uh, at least by the end of the year. How's that? Well, they've released things like the Alpha. Okay, the Alpha. That is, would probably be the first version or the first... Uh, is the first version? Is it alpha then beta? Is that how it works? I don't know. Alpha comes before beta, so I'm going to go with yes, but I could be wrong because I don't know how people do things. Yeah, you're right. They I may know. be confused. I, I'm, now I'm confused. But anyway, so so another thing, reason I want to pl- talk about the One Ring and is because I really like the game, and it's been out for a while. So I probably talked about this quite a bit, but anyway, it's worth re-talking about the One Ring as far as my experience with it. Uh, I tried a couple of times to get a game started. I mean, I, I got a game started, but it quickly fell apart. People stopped coming to my game or, you know, it kind of faded. One of the reasons why I believe is that the the One Ring, the way it's structured, the rules, it's kind of weird. You know, it, a lot of times games that are uh, that are written are usually done to be easy to read and and i'm not saying that that the one ring isn't easy to read but it's it has rules scattered throughout the book so when you go to create a character it's not all in one place well that is in one place but like let's say (laughs) let's say you talk about combat there's combat rules kind of like where the player's stuff is and there's combat rules where the like the gm section what they call the lore master and there's combat section has to do with armor and so it's kind of scattered and and that seems to be a a big impediment to understanding the game well because all the stuff isn't together all the rules that are pertinent to combat are not in a 13 page section section of the book there's two pages here there's three pages there five pages over somewhere else and so it was in that sense it was always difficult to figure out what exactly the rules were and very hard to use it as a reference document right like you couldn't just turn to the page to the combat section and have all of combat stuff there you had to remember oh uh armor talks about how it fits in combat in the armor section so you had to go look at the armor section and stuff like that you know everybody agrees that it's a beautiful book uh, uh, francisco nepatello uh is a person who obviously loves Tolkien, loves uh, Lord of the Rings, and the rules play that out. When you finally get, once you finally get the rules, the game plays really well for telling a a, uh, a story set in Middle Earth. And it's set. When is the setting? I, I believe. Well, it, it is set five years after the War of the Five Armies. So I think that's. Oh, I hate to put down the date i think it's the 24 5, 2940 something like that 
I could look it up if you want me to, but it's set five years after the War of the Five Armies. That's when the setting begins. What is important is that the one ring, the setting is only one section of Middle Earth, and that is... So it's in the time between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings? Right. After The Hobbit and before The Lord of the Rings, but really close to the end of The Hobbit, right? Because five years. And then I think it's like 80 years between the end of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings uh, books. So 80 years is a little bit of time, but closer to The to the Hobbit. And it takes place in Wilder Land, the wild areas. It basically takes takes place between the Misty Mountains and Erebor, which is uh, which is the the dwarven stronghold that Smog occupied and was freed. The region is known as Rov- Rovanian. Yes, the wild. The wilds. It's set there because a lot of not a lot is written about it. Well, there is a part where the Hobbit, he goes to Lonely Mountain, right? He kind of goes through the forest, and, and there's a mention about stuff like that. And there's a little bit in the Lord of the Rings where they go to Lothlorien, right? Uh, but other than that, there's not a lot of time spent in that area uh, in the Lord of the Rings books. Now, the Hobbit, of course, he Frodo Baggins goes through the, through the forest, gets captured by the wood elves and then they go down the river in the barrels and stuff like that and they end up in the lonely mountain and bard the you know kills the smog the dragon and all that stuff but then there's the battle of the five armies so the so the setting is five years after the battle of the five armies and it's a time of prosperity in the air in the area and things are looking good but slowly there's a darkening of the murkwood which is the forest the huge forest in between the Misty Mountains and Erebor. And that's where mainly your adventures take place. They don't take place in Gondor. They don't take place in, in Rohan or even the Shire. Uh, all those places are really far away. Uh, you're dealing with, uh, and they, and they really, there's no classes, so to speak, but there is roles that you play. And a lot of it has to do, a lot of the influence in your character is your culture that you come from. And they have the Bjorns, the people who follow Bjorn. There's the woodland men, people who more or less follow or are in, under the tutelage of uh, Radagast the, the Brown. And there's the people of, of uh, there's Erebor, the dwarves of, of the Lonely Mountain. There's the people of Lake Town. And there's the bards who follow Bard, who becomes king. Anyway, those backgrounds, those those societies really influence your character. And then there's the role that you play, the wanderer, the, the scholar, the protector, and all these other things. That So I really like the game. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's it, Like I said, it's written kind of funky. Well, speaking of that, there was a, a revised edition in 2014, right. which I think I'm looking at the book. Right. Because they put the smaller books together into a slipcase. Yes. Um, and they combined the it into a single hard hardback edition, right? Which I own also. Um, and they they re-edited and relaid it out, and they had errata and clarifications added. Yes, there's that. But the the original One Ring was two books, two soft cover books in a hard cardboard in a, in a box. Case. Yeah, uh, it was really nice. It came with dice. Uh, it came with these big uh, lore, master, uh, lore master maps and a player map. So it had a map of the same region, but the player map, player map 
had less information, right? And so it was it was really neatly done. Uh, the problem was, of course, there's errata in those books. Now, honestly, I don't remember too much errata from that one compared to this one. And literally, they just basically put two two books together and put it in one volume, which makes it sort of easier to deal with. For a while there, a lot of people, when it first this first came out, I was able to buy the One Ring, the slipcase cover, for 10 bucks at flea markets and stuff because people would buy it. It was kind of difficult to understand, and they wouldn't play it. And so I could always find discounted versions or like at flea markets or even on eBay for 20 to 10 bucks. Which he did. He bought them and he sent them to his friends right. and gave so them I, away because he really wanted people to play with them. Right. Exactly. That's how much I really wanted people to play because I'm like, man, I, uh, I, I, I thought, you know, I sent it to, I think I gave a copy to Felipe. I think I gave a copy to, uh, I can't think of who I This is what he does, people. <laughs> I gave it well because they were cheap. And then what happened was I bought I bought I bought it new, right? I I don't know if I I don't think I pre-ordered it, but I bought it new. Uh, maybe I did. I bought it, and they really had problems with the the binding on the soft covers. They would fall apart. Well, and even when you wasn't it with the when you got the second edition, the copy one? you got wasn't was was messed up or was that? No, that was something okay. Else. That was something else. Okay. Yeah, that was a. But this one too. Look at the separation. Because you, I remember you like emailed the person who the oh, author and the and then no no that was that was totally different that game. was a that different game okay the game is like i said it's not really easy to understand but i really wanted to play it so i, I think i gave a copy to blaine i gave a copy to felipe i gave a cop another copy to somebody i don't remember uh they, i don't think i gave a copy to steve anyway so i i was that enthusiastic about wanting to run or play this game and like i said i i tried i got Two groups together, we played, we played a little bit, and then it would just it would just drop off. Players stopped coming until or, you found your people. Until I found my peoples, yes. So what it what it took was one, people who really like Lord of the Rings. I I want to say that they're well, except for Bay, he probably it was almost a scholar of of uh, of Lord Tolkien, of the- Lord of the Rings, anyway, because he's actually I think he's actually read the Cimmerillion, and I think that. To me, if you've read The Cimmerillion, that puts you a step above almost everybody else. What if you fell asleep reading The Cimmerillion? Yeah, it doesn't count. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, it, it, A for effort, but uh, a good D for, uh, for, the gra- for, the, for the grade. So what makes The One Ring special other than the previous editions? I think, for me, is the feeling that you get when you play this game. If you want to play a role-playing game that really immerses you in the world and in the, in the feeling of the Lord of the Rings game, uh, Middle Earth, then this is the best one there is. It's just, it's built, r- written with the idea that you want to experience that, experience that Middle Earth experience. And I think that's what it does best. So when... When you are playing this game, it really does mimic that the Hobbit. You know when he's trying, when he's you know going through uh, the Barrel Downs, when he's going through Bree, and they're going through uh, the Mirkwood and all that stuff. It it really does. And the same thing for with the Lord of the Rings when they're traveling. The Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit are these tra- travel books, right? They're, it's a story about somebody journey, groups of people journeying from one place to another, and 
he includes journey and he calls it journeys, right? He includes rules for, for traveling, which a lot of people totally ignore in, in a lot of other games, like let's say D and D, but this one it really makes a point that traveling from one place to another is hazardous, is dangerous. It's a big world. And there's a lot of things out there that would like to take you and eat you and, and kill you and, and steal from you and stuff. So journeys are an important aspect of, or traveling is an important aspect of the One Ring. And there's rules for it. And I know a lot of people hate the rules. They're like, oh, do we have to make these journey rules or these journey rolls? And if you want to, and if you don't, if you want to take that out, that's fine. But, but it's limited. But Saul's against it? Well, I am because the whole point of Lord of the Rings, or at least of these tales in Middle Earth of the One Ring is that the world is not a safe place and it's an arduous task to leave your comforts of your home, right? That's a very Hobbit view. Exactly. Exactly what I was saying. What, what does he say? What's the, it's a very dangerous thing, stepping out of your home or something like that or whatever it is, whatever Bilbo says or, or Frodo says. And it's true. And this emulates that as in, in, a, in a rule set. It really emulates that idea that only people who are crazy or foolhardy are going to leave the comforts of the home and travel. And so I think that's pretty pretty cool. It's uh, a very agrarian idea. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, like, for example, traveling in the United States, right? Going from, from eastern United States in, like, in the, in the covered wagons was an arduous task. Now, if you include, let's say there's trolls out there, right? This is really arduous, right? I mean, not only trolls, but there's spiders. Uh, giant spiders i'm not talking about just little spiders you know things that could actually the little spiders out. are bad enough because they can take you out <laughs> but but let's say there's a giant spiders out there and and trolls and orcs that could all i was you. saying is that tolkien wrote it that way he was talking about the agrarian society well, i don't want to get into that but i'm just saying if, if you say so I, I i really am not a scholar of of tolkien and why he wrote it and what it means and and all those kinds of Egg, he egg heady type stuff. That was first edition, the One Ring. So basically what you're saying is you have to roll a journey roll every time you're going somewhere or during your journey? During your journey, depending on, on, the, on how hazardous the area is, you have to make significant number of journey rolls. And you have to roll like the hunter has to roll for food. Uh, the scout has to roll for... Yeah, they all. Everybody in the party has a different role, and if and if they don't make the role, then things happen, right? Like if the if the scout doesn't, if the hunter doesn't make his role, then you have you have a a problem eating, right? There's not enough food because there's no such thing. I mean, there is such thing as iron rations, but not really. Especially if you're going on a long journey, you have to find food along the way, and if you don't find food. Then you suffer fatigue, right? You get more tired because you're not eating as much. If the scout doesn't find a good route, it takes you longer to go places. I forget who it is, but if the one person doesn't make it their role, uh, finding a good place to stay, you could you could find yourself bedding down for a night where there's a ant nest or something like that, and that causes you to be fatigued the next day because you didn't rest because you had to find a different place to stay, or it was too wet, or it something was wrong right so there's all and then and this happens every day this happens as you're traveling so a lot of people 
a lot of people don't like making these journey rolls, especially if you're making a long journey that takes weeks. Well, I could see if you were making a long journey that takes weeks. And it's kind of like where you're at that door and the thief can't get the lock open (laughs) and the GM just keeps making you roll. So maybe as the GM, if you're doing a journey in this particular game, you might want to have like, do you really want to do it every day or do you want to do it for like a couple days or something like that? I'm right. just saying, I can understand where, where people would, would, that would be reminiscent of other things where you just have to keep rolling the dice. You're just getting bad things are happening to you. Well, no, but if you make the rolls. I understand. Yeah. I'm just saying, if you're t- saying, if you're telling me, if you're taking a journey for 30 days, you're going to have to, everybody's going to have to roll the dice 30 times for this. It could be a, that could take an hour. Yeah. Where I the players are. Just rolling dice. Yeah. But I think it's not every day, but I think th- another good thing about the rules is that they give you examples of what ha- might happen. If you fail a roll and it, if you make a roll. It's not a table, is it? No, no tables, just examples. Okay. And then after a while, you kind of come up with your own examples of, of what mishaps can happen and what, what good things can happen. Or you can let your players come up with the examples. Oh, so yeah, you don't have to do all true. the work. Shows the load. But uh, a lot of people don't like that aspect, I guess. And then there's the rules, the way they're written. But but ultimately, to me, if once you get the rules down and you understand them, it, they work really well, right? Another one is the stances, right? Uh, this is how uh, combat works. Now, a lot of people think, well, well, here are the stances. There's forward, there's uh, open, defensive, and rearward. Rearward. And, and because there's that word rearward and forward, a lot of people think that the people have to be in front of each other and next behind each other and stuff like that. And it, it, it's more of a, it's less of a position and a more of a, a stance. It really is just a stance on, on how you're attacking. You're not necessarily, forward means you're not in the front, like in the front of the of the line in, in, a, in the dungeon as in D&D. It's, it's the way you are entering combat. You're being really aggressive. You're, you're moving forward. You're... So then rearward would be that you were doing it sneakily? Well, rearward is usually only available for people who want to use uh, missile weapons like arrows, bows, arrows, bows and arrows and stuff like that. And so that they're in a rearward stance. They're the most defended people and, and or defensive and they're shooting from uh, a more protected location or being really careful about about being protected because they don't want to get attacked by a person with the, in melee combat or a troll. Or anybody, but they don't want to go into melee combat. And then there's there's defensive, right? Now, defensive and a forward person can be right next to each other, but just because the forward person is being more aggressive and taking more chances and attacking and 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 whatever, where the def- the, the open one or the defensive one is like, I'm only going to attack when there's an opening and stuff like that. So what happens is is the is the on your the stance. The, 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 the stance determine how hard it is not only to hit but to be hit, and that number is the same. Yeah. Right. So, like in o in forward, the TN the target number to hit you is nine. The target number to hit the enemy is also nine, so it's low, and it goes up. It goes up to like. So the defensive person. I think it's a twelve, and in the then the real word is fourteen. Right, because they're really hard to hit because they're behind everybody else, and you usually can only hit them if you have a missile weapon. So. 
a lot of people who were like, even me, when I first read that, I'm like, oh, I understand. Forward, the person's in the front line, like in D&D. And then there's the open. And I'm like, I'm not sure what open means. and I But I know defensive. He's being defensive. And I know what rearward means. So I, I was putting them in ranks. Like, oh, forward's in front. The open's right behind him. The defensive is behind that person. And the rearward is in the back of all, the, let's say, there's four of them. But that's not what the rules are really in, are really talking about. They're talking about it's just the way you're going to attack yeah, or and, or not attack. So I thought it was really neat, and I was trying. Like I, there was a couple times I I remember running the game even before I fully understood it, and then and then the, I think Blaine was the person who said, "Well, I don't think I don't think you have to be in front or behind people." I'm like, "You're right," because in nowhere in the game does it talk about where you're located. Position. Right. It's more and and it's more theater of the mind than actual miniatures in, in on the on the table in that aspect. Okay. Another thing I liked is about that about that is the theater of the mind aspect and less crunchiness. Well, I think you should talk about the dice. Right. Since that's the part of the mechanic. Right. So anytime you do anything you have a feet die. It's yes. a twelve sided die. It's a twelve sided die. And there's special die. It's a special mark. It has die. a Gandalf on one side. A rune. And it has a the Eye of Sauron on the other side. Right. And then there's numbers between one. And ten. And ten. It can't be one. It has to be two and ten. No. One. One, two, three. Because it's a 12-sided die. One. If it's a 12-sided die and Gandalf is on 12 and the Eye of Sauron is on one, then oh, it's no. two to... He's looking at it the wrong way. There's one through ten. Gandalf is on 12. Uh, so Eye of Sauron is 11. So you always roll that feet die. And then you have these bonus dice depending on your skill. And the skills are six-sided dice. So let's say you have a two skill in Explore. You would roll the Feet Die, 12-sided die, which is actually 1 through 10 plus the Gandalf and the and the Eye of Sauron rune. And you roll two six-sided dice. <laughs> Boom. You add up, add up the numbers that show up and you try to hit a target number. Usually it's 14, right? Yes. The average number or the, the average... Uh, task target number is 14 and average. if you get a gandalf then you made it it doesn't matter what you right. got it's automatic success if you get the eye of sauron then something bad happens something bad happens so another thing is all oh, those six-sided dice one through three are well in the in the original dice they're hollow right there's an outline of the one two and three and in the, the four five and six are colored in black Instead of outlined, they're pulling in flag. And then the six has a little, they call it a tenguar, which is a, a little uh, insignia. So uh, everything is there for a reason, right? So when, I'm going to get a little ahead of myself, but when you are weary, that's basically when uh, you're really tired. You, you don't, when you're weary, the ones and threes do not count when you roll this for skills or for combat. One through three or just one and one, three? One, two, three. Okay. Those numbers. Then they're hollow. That's what That's It gives you an, a visual cue as to not to count them. And only the four, fives, and six count. Okay. Right. Then there's the tengwar, which is that little thing on the six-sided dice. Now, what that means is if you succeed and you get a roll of six, that means you get a, a extraordinary success. Right. You get like a, a real good success. So you get like a little bonus. And if you get two of them, it's a great success. I think it's a great success and an extraordinary success. And they give you they give you bonuses to whatever you're doing. 
So that's really interesting. And it's a simple mechanic, and it works really well with just a few dice. And because you're able to interpret these dice uh, multitude, multitude of ways. And every time you have to roll one of their dice, yeah. the feet dice, well, you guys were doing little checks. Okay, so also, yes. And, and then that, that's kind of like uh, your... It kind of like XP in a certain sense, right? Because you're called using XP. it. They're called ad- achievement points, advancement points. Because right? you're using you it. Because you're using it and you succeed. Okay. So remember, if you look, and that's what I looked at, loved about the One Ring, though. Just the the character sheet itself is pretty ingenious, though there's some problems with it. So skills are divided uh, among the three stats that you have, which is, for example, you have body, heart, and wits. Those are the three attributes, they call them. And underneath those attributes, there is skills. And let's say, for example, body, their skills are all athletics, awareness, explore, song, and craft. Cool. They're called common skills. And then uh, under under heart, there's a number of skills. And under wits, there's other skills. But if you also read the character sheet across, instead of straight up and down, on the very right-hand side, they're called skill groups. And one of them is called personality. The other one's movement, perception, survival, custom, and vocation. And what happens is, let's say I have, I'm using awareness. I look at awareness. I roll my dice. I succeed. I look all the way across, and it's under perception. There's three little check marks that you do. When you succeed, you put a little check mark on the first one. If you succeed again, you don't put a check mark. You have to to get the second check mark. You have to have a, uh, a great success. So then you can mark the little check mark. And then the third one, if you have an extraordinary success, right? And those at the very end, you, you count up all these little check marks that you get from all these successes. And that's how many advancement points you get that you can you later use when you are uh, in a fellowship phase to advance your character. character. But I mean, but boom, real easy, really interesting. If you have a problem understanding what I'm saying, just grab a character sheet from uh, the internet and it will have this general uh, layout. And I think it was I, one of the things I like about certain games is the character sheet. They're just ingenious. I went on and on about the alien RPG character sheet and Jolene's rolling her eyes if you don't realize it. And she's kind of having that same situation here. <laughs> okay, so that really works really well. And I, and I think I, I've obviously good i've talked about it i really like it it works really well so you said something about there's two phases well you didn't say it but there's two phases of play right there's the adventuring phase and the fellowship, fellowship phase. phase so the adventuring phase is the action or action phase right the the, the where you're out there adventuring and what's it called the adventuring, and you're doing stuff and then there's a the fellowship phase which is where it's your downtime because the area that you're playing in is really the winters are really harsh. Most people just hunker down for the winter and take it easy. And that's called the fellowship phase. And, and Which is a, another agrarian thing. Is it? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, that makes sense. You're right. So what happens is, is you decide to take some sort of undertaking during your fellowship phase. So if you're a scholar, you decide just to to research something? Yeah, so you go into a library or something. And there's different ones depending on what area you're in and what your vocation is or your your uh, not your class, but So if you want to if you want to learn your bow better, you you can 
get a teacher and do that during the... Well, no, the, that's not... Okay, so the fellowship phase is really uh, a way of getting rid all out of the emotional baggage that you build up during the adventuring phase. And that has to do with this thing called hope. So in this game, there is a, there is a, I don't know what you would call it, but there's an aspect or there is a hope. You call it hope, right? It's a, it's kind of like a statistic and you have hope and you start off with hope and hobbits have the most hope because they're really like, they're hobbits. free and lo- you know, loving life. They start with the highest hope and, that number doesn't ever go up. You have that that hope, and on on the opposite, on the downside, there's is shadow, oh. right? So what happens is you use hope as a currency to to really push your character to do stuff. So during the fellowship phase, you're trying to get the hope back, right? Okay. You're trying to regain hope, and unfortunately, it's a lot of times uh, you only gain regain one, two, or three hope. And where you could lose like five or six hope during the adventuring phase. Another thing you could gain is shadow. And shadow is when you do bad things, right? Uh, there's a list of them. Bad things are like killing an unarmed opponent. Killing or harming uh, an opponent that's tied up or, a, or a, a prisoner. Torturing, stuff like that. You know, all these bad things is a shadow. So your shadow, you get a point of shadow for doing bad stuff. Boom, or for carrying something that's evil, the one ring would be would give you shadow. Like Frodo was gaining shadow as the longer he carried the one ring. What happens is y- your hope goes down, your shadow goes up. So if those numbers ever meet, then you have a bout of madness, where you basically you go off and start doing crazy things. You go bark late, what loony, and then and then you, you your bout of madness ends, and you recover a little bit of hope. But but you're in trouble because you're always, if your hope is really low and your shadow is really high, uh, and I, one aspect is that you can hard, I don't think you can ever get rid of your shadow. So a lot of it is you just try to regain your hope. And that was what the fellowship phase is really about, is that you're, you're reconnecting with the community, uh, whatever community you're, you're in, and you're doing something for the community that gives you hope for the future. So usually it's like, uh, staying at a sanctuary and like like Rivendell or Radagast's home, uh, building a monument or help bu- r- help build a school, stuff like that. That gives you hope and lets you keep adventuring longer. That's interesting. These guys really understood what Tolkien was writing about. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, like I said, Francesco Nepotello is an amazing author. Uh, I think I talked about before. He originally wrote uh, Battle, not Battle for Middle Earth, but he wrote the the War of the Rings, a remake of the of the game, and a, a board game. And people, it was, it was considered one of the best war games, one of the best war games there is. Uh, but it's also considered one of the best uh, Middle Earth board games there is. I know that I know that um, that there's a second edition coming out. Yes, but the, the first edition has a bunch of supplements. It's so because they have the Rivendell is yes. one of them. Yes, Ruins of the North, Tales of the Winderland, w- Wild- Wild- Wilderland, Wilderland, the Heart of the Wild, which gives you different settings or different. Uh, uh, Heart of the Wild. Uh, it, it I mean, of, all of them. They give it's, you. It's more of a travel log about the area. Right, it gives so you more information, information about the area where you're playing in. Yeah, much, much more details. There's more of them. There's Bree. 
is a mini region. Yes. And different ones. And then the, the Ritter Mark. Oath of the Ritter Mark. I don't know about this Laughter of Dragons. What is that? I think that is an adventure campaign, kind of short campaign book. Wow. I think that's the, I think I this is, is the latest supplement, but well, I don't know when this was written. Yes, they're all old. They're all, they're all unfortunately out of print. Oh, and, well, and there you go. They're all very expensive if you try to find them now. The, okay, so what happened was originally this was published by Cubicle 7, mm-hmm. uh, first edition, and they printed the revised edition. With Francisco Nepotello, they were working on the second edition, and then something happened. Uh, obviously, some contractual obligation uh, something or other and cubicle seven lost the rights. the rights to make uh to to lost the rights to the second to do the second edition now the problem with that is they had already worked on it quite a bit in fact if you had been been a fan of the one ring they were putting out pictures and 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 short snippets of like pages of the what they were working on and it looked beautiful i mean if you like the the i i, I happen to like the original art of the of the one ring it's really well done. Uh, I think most of the work was done by uh, John Hodgkins, and it's really I, I really like I really like the aesthetic value of the of the book. So he was working with Cubicle Seven in the second edition, and then when it fell apart, it was uh, what is it? It was basically lost. You know, Nepotello was saying, "We're still going to put out a second edition. I'm looking for somebody to publish it to help me publish it." Blah blah blah. But they couldn't use the same stuff. They can't use the same stuff because it's obviously owned by Cubicle 7 and they're not going to give something away, theoretically. To a different publisher. Right. Nepotello hooked up with Free League, uh, who's made uh, obviously all kinds of games, uh, Tales from Loop, Coriolis, Alien RPG, uh, very well known for their, for, their, uh, for their art and their quality of their books. So it seemed like a good fit. And it, it has been. Uh, the art obviously is different. The aesthetic is different. If you if you like it, that's fine. I personally don't like it as much as the first edition. But it hasn't still, come out yet, so you can't say that. Well, the aesthetic, as far as the way the books are constructed, but still, they use top artists. So obviously, it's going to be a great looking book. Uh, it was kickstarted, I believe, last year. Oh, so if you don't like it, does that mean you're not going to buy it? Well, I already kickstarted it, so I'm going to get the book. So no matter what. So the, the the only thing is, is the second edition obviously is going to have different rules. Now, Francisco Nepotillo said that the rules are going to be backwards compatible to a certain extent. And so there's obviously some rule changes. And and some of them, if you uh, are part of the Kickstarter, you already got the alpha. So the second edition from Free League, just, I don't want to make this a hugely long episode. So I'll hit on two different things that they changed. One is... Ill-favored and ill-favored and favored, right? And basically, they—I wouldn't say stole, but they borrowed the idea from D and D Fifth Edition with advantage and disadvantage. I, I think I don't think they borrowed it or stole it. I think it's their own idea. No. So in the original rules, you would get a D twelve. That D twelve, the Sauron die, Gandalf uh, plus the one through ten. So now you get two. So yeah, if you have a favored situation, you roll two dice. If it's ill-favored slash disadvantage you roll two dice and take the lower one if it's advantage or you still get favored, the six-sided dice you still get the six-sided okay. to add so what happens is that's an interesting that's an interesting aspect of the rules and it's a simple change not hugely 
game breaking or game changing, but it is substantial. In a, in a certain way, it's really so. You only get one of the twelve sided die, right? Okay. You get the one that's higher if it's favored, or the lower one. What happens if you if you roll a Sar- a Sauron? Oh. I guess we'll have to find out. That would be interesting. I didn't read the rules as far as that aspect. But I guess if it's ill-favored, right? Let's say you roll a Gandalf and an and a Eye of Sauron. Then you get the Eye of Sauron. And if it's favored... Saul doesn't know this. He's just guessing, he's just speculating. It makes sense. I'm just being sensible. And another aspect that they changed was hope. Now, hope... Uh, I would have to get into the weeds as how it works in the first edition. But what it does is... You just did. You just told us... That you use it as currency, right. and if your hope and shadow meet, then you go crazy. Right, but but what? Why would you use hope? So let's say you miss a roll. Let's say I, I miss a roll of of awe, which under is under body. I missed the roll by. Let's say I, the target number is fourteen, and I roll a twelve. Oh, I missed. Darn. Well, if you are if you have hope and you are willing to spend it, one point of hope, you get to add your body which is an attribute that's on top of that skill list, and add that, whatever your body is, to the total number. And if it's enough to kick it over the, the number you need, let's say you need a 14-year-old 12, and your body's 5, it gives you a roll of a 17, that means you, you, you succeed, boom, you succeed, and you're able to succeed when you really want to by spending hope. It makes it pretty interesting, makes it pretty easy. Also, you get to decide... After you roll the dice, whether you want to spend the hope, and you also get to see that spending hope is not is going to work or not work. So you could choose whether to spend hope or not. Now, if it's not going to work, there's no reason to spend hope. So you're not going to spend hope. But in the second edition, they changed it, right? They changed it. Instead of adding your body or any of your tributes, you get to an extra six-sided die, which leads to the question, are you going to spend that hope if there's a chance that you may not succeed? Now, to me, that's a significant change in the game. It's a significant change in the way the the game is played as far as players because it gives them a chance to succeed and it's not guaranteed where in the original rules it was guaranteed when you spend hope. You could just or get, you knew. You know yeah. if you would succeed by spending hope or not. So then you could decide whether to spend it or not. Right. So. And this, in, the, in the new second edition rules, you're have a chance of succeeding so i i foresee lots of uh house ruling house rules <laughs> on that one depending on how oh. people like it because some people might say that you should you shouldn't be able to know whether you're going to succeed or not you should have to take the chance yeah i agree i agree just talking to bay and morgan morgan they really don't like that <laughs> Well, the, well, at least Morgan is kind of a gamer, right? He likes the gaming the system, and it works to his disadvantage as a player if he doesn't know it's going to succeed by spending hope. When you know, you're going to spend that hope no matter you know if you really want to succeed. You're going to spend that hope, and you're not even going to hesitate. Though when you get an extra six-eyed die, and you need a three or higher, but there's a chance you might roll a one or two and not succeed and still end up using hope. Oh, that's a... You really, what probably is going to happen is people are going to spend less hope, is my estimation. Which makes the game more greedier, right? Because then you're yes, not going to succeed all the time. As much. Another reason that Morgan would love spending hope is because every time you succeed, you get to check mark that little check mark, which gives you an advancement point, which 
later on you can at, during the fellowship phase you can uh, get make your character better. So he was quite the gamer in that sense that he would spend hope. But he I guess he would spend enough hope that he he thought he could regain most of the hope that he'd spent, which is only one or two. Right. Anyway, Free League is doing second edition. The book looks really nice. The art is different than the first edition, of course. They're using totally different artists. The rule changes are usually just Francesco Nepotello is the same person who wrote it. Uh, also, the other guy, Maggi. Um, Marco Maggi, I would Maggi say. Maggi is, is his name. It's M-A-G-G-I. So. Yes. They're the same team that worked on the original rules. So they aren't. It'll be like any other second edition where people tweak the rules a bit. Right. People will like or dislike it. Right. And another thing that supposedly Free League is working on, which was supposedly going to be done by, by Cubicle 7, was Moria. There's, there's always been this thing that they want the Moria expansion. They wanted it from the first edition. It was promised in the second edition. Uh, yeah, you give me. Why? <laughs> Why? It was supposed to be a box set and all this other stuff. And I don't know. That's I, exactly the way my son would say it, by the way. Why? Why would you want that? I don't even want to know because it doesn't even make any sense. Well, I, I guess the something I didn't realize, but the Bane of Durin. The, the guy who dug too deep, that happened hundreds of years before the Fellowship of the Ring, before they went through the, through the tunnels. And basically, it drove all the dwarves out of Moria, right? And they went into the Lonely Mountain, the Iron Hills, and the Blue Hills. So I thought it was kind of weird that Gimli didn't know that Durin wasn't still alive there. Anyway, interesting thought. But supposedly that happened hundreds of years before. That has nothing to do with Moria. Moria. Anyway, but Moria is like a terrible place to go, right? It's my estimation. I would not want to go to Moria my, as a player, as a character. And so you would really have to, like, seriously have need to go through Moria, like the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, they had no choice in the one, at one point. There's bad things there. The creature caved in the, the exit. So the, obviously uh, Free League has a lot of plans to work with the... With the well, I guess I could see why people would want to do it, but it doesn't... The fool It party? would be, yeah... <laughs> You thought you talking about the, the players, the really foolhardy. Yeah, just that's not good. Okay, there you go. This is gaming perspectives with Saul and Jolene. You have a good day. Mm-hmm.